Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 15th, 2017, and this is episode 2025 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, that means it's time for a listener call show, and I have a bunch of them lined up. Here's what we're going to talk about. Bunch of stuff on cryptocurrency, some stuff on homesteading, some stuff on wildlife and livestock and uh, aquaponics plants, all kinds of stuff today. Here's what we got. We got, well, somebody say, could the government create cryptocurrencies and crash them to damage the sector? Come out with newfangled coin X and, and hype it and then purposely smash it to the ground and, and keep doing that until they discredit the whole sector. No, 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 no not so much. Uh, I'll explain why. Um, When's the right time to buy your first house? That's kind of like asking when's the right time to have your first kid. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, how to take cryptocurrency as payment at something like a farmer's market or a swap meet or something like that. Uh, we'll talk about the really, I think, the easiest way to do that. Uh, options for buying cryptocurrency other than from Coinbase. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you why I don't think maybe that's the problem. I don't know that you need to buy it elsewhere, but and and we'll you'll get you'll understand when we get to it. Starting a homestead and sheep versus goats would be another thing that we'll be talking about today. Uh, you might imagine where I'm going to come down on the sheep versus goats thing. A listener shares some aquaponics hacks and one really cool simple one that might be useful in a lot of different things. Um, a warning on buying certain plants on eBay from a buddy of mine out there in California, and the same guy wants to know how to buy Swarm City tokens. And a question on what to do if wildlife shows up on your property that you that's endangered, you know, like some rare creature. Should you call Uncle Sam and tell him, hey, man, you got a, a wildlife you know, special animal here or something or not? And I'll tell you why I think the answer is no. And I'm going to tell you an interesting thing that I learned this morning or a concept that was revealed to me this morning about protecting endangered wildlife under a private sector solution uh, when a bunch of libertarians were sitting around going, I don't like government, but I don't know, man, these rhinos, how would we protect rhinos or whales without government uh, and the guy that was on the show them like in 10 seconds came up with a solution that's probably the best solution you could implement anyway all of that and more in just a bit before we do get into this stuff let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day let me ask you a question do you have a favorite knife a special knife one you may hand down to a son or a daughter how cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself with KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Okay, now let's take a look at the year, uh, this year in history, the year 7, as we take our journey forward through history to catch up to where Alex Shrug started the year in history for the podcast. We are now to the year 7. I have a segment here from David Verne called Scorched Earth. 
The revolt that broke out in Dalmatia, the modern-day Balkans, still vastly outnumbers Roman soldiers in the region. Tiberius avoids an open battle to give more time for reinforcements to arrive and begins to harass small enemy units and burn farmland. Five legions from the east and the militia from Italy arrive under the command of Germanius Caesar, Tiberius' nephew. They expand the scorched earth campaign started by Tiberius and force the rebels into the mountains. Cut off from supplies, it is the beginning of the end of the rebellion. My take by David Verne. Whenever a military is conducting anti-insurgency operations, they must cut the rebels off from their base of support. If the local population sympathizes with the rebels, it is nearly impossible to defeat them. Scorched earth is frequently used as a means of cutting off supplies and acts uh, as a threat for any locals supporting the rebels. The rebels normally respond by threatening the populace if they don't support the rebellion. In the end, the people who lose most of this, most in this kind of war, are those that don't fight for either side and get caught between them. Indeed, and there's a lesson here that comes to the modern day that you don't want to be involved in anybody's war. You want to be over here because if you're involved in anybody's war, you have three choices. One, you're in the crossfire, not good, as you just heard, and that that can be said in most wars. The population that has suffered the most has been the civilian population, including in modern wars, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the, the people that suffer most are civilians. Even when, even when you do everything you can as, as, as a combatant to avoid it, it's inevitable. And in wars like World War I, I mean, my God, the civilian toll was, was enormous. World War II, again, right? So... In warfare, no matter what kind of, whether it's economic warfare, whether it's battlefield warfare, it's always the people in the crossfire that get hurt the worst because they have no resources. And they are stuck in a place that's being fought over. Number two, you have a choice of being a combatant, right? Now, if you're a combatant, the problem is, unless you're the guy that's actually in charge, you know, the head honcho, and I don't even mean the general, unless you're the, the Caesar, the top Caesar, then all you're doing is fighting one group that wants to control people on behalf of another group that wants to control people, and that means you are part of the system of control. The third option is to get out of the way. Um, there were a lot of people who did this in the Civil War. They either went way out on the fringes of the Confederacy or way up into the northern part of the Union. And many of them did it before the whole thing completely went to shit especially if you wanted to go to one side or the other. And, and, and the smart people kind of knew that the way that the, the, the thing was going to run is it was probably going to end up being a Union victory. They went north, like north of Pennsylvania, you get it? Like away from where the battle lines would ever be and went on with their lives. And people sometimes call that cowardice. I call that intelligent. Now, if you want to, to join up and fight for one side or the other, that's fine. But if you're not going to, if you're not going to get out of the way. And that's how we need to be thinking today when it comes to things like alternative media, when it comes to things like distributed architecture like blockchain, all of it. We don't need to be in the middle of the fight. We need to be out here in the world of the crypto savage in the words of my buddy Vin Armani. We need to be right in plain sight but yet unseen and under, misunderstood and ignored. And ignored long enough that by the time they want to fight you it's too late. That is the strategy of survival, and it's not just this being a survivalist, being like a thrivalist, right? Being able to actually thrive and actually do better in these times of turmoil that we're in right now. My take by Jack Spierko. 
Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. All right, with that, I want to... uh I want to get into the main topic today, taking your calls, but before I take your first call, I want to give a little bit of an update. Yesterday I mentioned something called Minergate, and I said, you know, if a few of you guys, you know, download the software, try your hand at mining, whatever, um, let me know so I can see if, like, are they legit with their affiliate program? Because I have a link in, on the, on the site, a little banner up in the, in the, 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 uh, the main banner area, and, uh, Quite a few people gave it a shot. I don't know how it's working for anybody. I heard from some direct. Um, a couple of people didn't use nicknames that don't show up. But in my affiliate area, I can see somebody named Semantic DM, Dwayne Cam, eBay Stevo, Charlie F. And I won't say the whole thing because his nickname is his full name. Uh, Moron ha, Morani Ha, and Ductal Pegasus. And they all show that these folks did a little bit of mining. Actually, eBay, Stevo, and Charlie have yet to actually mine. They just downloaded the software. And I think that's, that does show that it works. I'm not totally sold on this yet. But again, I have this Macintosh computer that sits here that I pretty much record my interviews on now and uh, maybe look some stuff up on Firefox that just sits here. And given that it's just sitting here, letting this thing run for a week and seeing where it ends up at the end of a week instead of a day... I, I, I think is worth giving a shot to. One of the guys that wrote me said he has like a 16-core gamer PC. He's going to give a shot with this. And, and I'm looking at some other options for mining today. I don't want to go too deep into this, but I just want to say if you want to, if you want to fool around with mining a little bit, um, I'd recommend go ahead and download the Minergate thing. You can get the link in my, on my site. And in today's show notes, in the, the links, there's a, uh, a, a specific link that says Mine Crypto on Minergate. Uh, but I'm looking at some other things, too, like what's called cloud mining, and I'm going to talk about that for a totally different reason than I think most people are thinking about it, and that's what I love about this community. I love about this community. It was a question that came in for this week's show, and then the knowledge of cloud, cloud mining, and then the two things being put together in a way that I don't think most people would, but I bet you there's a ton of people doing it because it makes a lot of freaking sense. It makes a lot of freaking sense when you think about it. And when I answer that question, it'll make a lot of freaking sense to you. I do have a lot on crypto today. Remember, if you're like, I just, like, this is turning into the crypto cast. Like, I have had times people say it's the permacast or whatever. Listen, guys, pick up the phone. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You'll hear a message and a beep. Leave me your question or comment. Make your question or your point up front in one sentence. And then... Give me the details. Hey, by the way, I appreciate you guys speaking loudly enough to be heard. But don't talk to me on the phone like this. You'll hear one guy do that today. I had to get my wife to tell me what he was actually saying, okay? So, like, 
Get to a quiet location. Make sure you have a couple bars. Speak clearly. Don't scream at the phone and, and, and take the phone out of your mouth when you're leaving a message. Not to pick on anybody, but, man, I listened to this call like three times. And I said, can you come in here and say what he's saying? And she did, so we get to play it today. I won't tell you what one it is, but I bet you'll know when you hear it. Anyway, first question is on crypto, and it is, could the government create and crash cryptos to damage the sector? Caller, go ahead with your question, and then we will give an answer to this. I think it's, uh, it, 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 anyway, I'll just play it, and then we'll, uh, we'll get you an answer. Hey, Jack, if I was the NSA, I would start my own cryptocurrency like Dash, build it up, then crash it, then do another one like Litecoin, then have Janet Yellen call me up and help me out, crash it. Just delegitimize it. What do you think about that? This is Brian in Oklahoma. Thanks. Okay, so the, the, the problem with this philosophy comes from a lack of understanding of how cryptocurrencies work. So one of the fundamental realities behind just about every crypto that's ever been put out, and if somebody were to put a new one and break this cycle, it would immediately be like, rah, 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 like, like just, a, and especially if, if it ran way up and then smashed to the ground, right? Uh, then it would be totally on like, hey, it's, there's, there, there's, there's bullshit going on here. It, it's that all of these programs are open source. If you, like, I just learned about one called Zencash today, I think is really cool, and I'm actually, because they just launched and they're high, I'm, this is something I want to tell you guys about cryptos when they're launched. You'll always, if you look at every crypto that's ever launched, you see a great big spike in the beginning, it drops off and it goes flat for a long time, and then it comes back up as they actually get stuff going on in the world, right? So, if you hear about one and you think it's cool, give it a couple, especially if it's brand new and it's kind of high, give it a couple days, you'll probably save a few bucks, okay? Um, I'm not going to say it'll always happen that way, but yeah. But any of these things, like, you can go to, like, their GitHub. You can go and you can look at their source code and all. And I know what you might be thinking. Well, like, Jack, if I look at that, I don't understand jack shit about it. I don't either. But there are people in this developer space that, like, every time one comes out, the first thing they want to do is find out what's wrong with it so they can say, this is why it sucks. Or go, hey, I can't find anything wrong with it. That's So if they built some kind of in integral flaw into it on purpose, especially one, let's say, a blockchain size issue similar to what Bitcoin is dealing with right now and probably going to segregated witness in August 1st, like, if they built that into it from the beginning to cause a problem, that was already known, they'd be like, these people are idiots. So if they built a good crypto that was actually a good solid bit of code, they could no more cause it to crash than they could cause Bitcoin to crash or cause Dash to crash. Like there would be no reason to build your own just to crash it. But the only way you could really crash the shit out of a crypto would be buy the piss out of it and then dump it. And you could dump it for some stupid sales price. You know, like, if you actually use an exchange, it's very much like an E-Trade account. If you, like, use something like Bittrex, you, you'll see what's called a bid and an ask. And, and you know, one of the things I think you know when you know that, that, that it's likely that, that that particular currency is going to continue to drop for a while is when the bid and the ask are the same. Right? If it's some, you know, low-dollar crypto and they're both 16 cents... You know, and the, like the Bitcoin differentiator is like way out, like to the ninth freaking decimal point. Um, then what what that means is that people are buying and selling at the exact same price. The people asking for a price 
are getting the exact price they're asking for, no one's bidding it a little lower, or no one's actually asking a little higher. There's no spread there, right? So you've got that bid and that ask. So what, what a person could do or what an entity could do is get a, a currency, get millions of dollars. They, they didn't care about losing money, right? So government could do this. They don't care about losing money. Buy the shit out of it and then put it out for sale cheap. And they could just crash the price. Now, if it was a legitimate crypto, what would, what would, what would happen? People would just buy it all the way to the floor. You want to sell it for a penny? I don't give a shit. You want to, you want to do that with Dash? You want it like if the NSA wanted to go out and buy like, you know, $50 million worth of Dash and then dump it all in one day at a low price and I found out Dash was selling for 10 cents a freaking unit, buy a thousand bucks worth. I mean, unless you knew there was a, if you knew that it was an attack like that going on, you know that that, that has to run out. You can't keep doing that. You can only do it for so long, and the more you do it, the more opportunity you create. So that doesn't really work either. It, it, it's like doing it with a stock, but doing it with a solid stock. Let's say you wanted to crash the value of a stock like General Electric. If you were a multi-billionaire and you didn't care about losing money, you could go out and buy as much of it as you could get. You know, you probably aren't going to get a controlling interest because they don't want you. That's a hostile takeover. But you maybe you get 10% of their stock and then go out and just dump it for half value. Sure, you can tank it, but it's going to rebound. The only reason it's tanking is because people are actually buying it for the price that you're dumb enough to sell it for. Um, as far as the other way to build some kind of flaw into it. But again, if you build a flaw into it, that could be like hidden up into us. It can't be hidden because the code's there and there's people that that's what they do. That's the only thing they do. Is go out look at look at this stuff. So could the government create a cryptocurrency? Sure, anybody can with the right expertise and knowledge and backing. Of course you can. Is that ever a danger? I, I would say so. I would say that like the bigger danger would be government creating a cryptocurrency and making it the end all be all and having some sort of uh, you know ability to actually decrypt all of the transactions within it and see everything even though it's supposed to be invisible like let's say like a Zcash or a Zencoin or a Dash if, if you use the protections that Dash has in it to make it invisible like you you could do that I guess but again you're going to have to put that code out if it's going to be accepted in the cryptoverse right then you're going to have to put that code out for people to look at people are going to audit that code um, so you have to do a hidden hack in an open source code. It, it can be done, but it would be difficult. I think it would be extremely difficult to do. Uh, but this is why I don't even think it's government. Like You have to be really careful with the speculation on these new cryptos. And just because somebody has a cool-looking website and says they're going to save the world doesn't mean that they are. And, and I, this is my thing with any crypto that I would speculate on. What does it do better than proven things that we already have available. How does it enable some sort of activity or transaction or business that we, we think is going to be valid that the currency is necessary for? So, for instance, um, if you look at a cryptocurrency and they say they're building this platform for the healthcare industry, and this is the crypto that's going to run on it, well... Do I do you need that crypto for that that product to work? Because then it's just a it's a backhanded way of doing uh, 
an, an unregulated stock IPO, but your stock will probably end up worthless because it becomes a useless bite on a network that doesn't really require it. Just because you build a, a healthcare system that runs on HealthCoin, let's say, doesn't mean that people are going to pay with HealthCoin on that network. Is, is there a solid reason for someone to pay with that currency on that network? That's where I, I, I kind of like what I'm seeing out of Brave right now with the basic attention token. But I'll tell you the mind of Jack Spierko here. And that, no financial advice, anything in crypto, especially you know anything other than Bitcoin, Ethereum, I, I got to say is really speculation money. But they have a cryptocurrency called BAT, or B-A-T, basic attention token. And they did $35 million in an ICO, initial coin offering, in like six minutes. And like six people got 90% of the coins. Six parties got 90% of the coins. It immediately went up for sale on exchanges like Bittrex and was selling for about 26 cents. Now when you do, see this is the thing, no one does the math. So if they raised $35 million and they issued X number of these coins, what did they sell for? The answer, 3.5 cents. 3.5 cents. So you know the vast majority of this currency is sitting in the hands of six entities. It might not be people. It could be you know, it could be a big some big mining hub in China may have said, oh hell, they're going to put all this up and <laughs> and they've got all this hashing power so they can generate their own Ethereum, right? They go and have their 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 Bitcoin Ethereum rich. They just buy a shitload of this stuff at three and a half cents, and they're like, well, I could sell it for a quarter the next day. You think three cents and a quarter is not high, but look at the spread there. So I've been watching it. When it first came out, it was like selling for 26 cents. I'm like, well, I would have probably bought it at the ICO for that, but I did the math. What did these people pay for it? Three and a half cents. What does that tell me? They can make, they can make three times their money all the way down to about 11 cents. And I'm watching it. And I'm watching. I'm not in any hurry. I don't think Brave's going to do anything massive in the next couple weeks that's going to spike their price. And I'm waiting for it to come down. And it's already down from 26 to 16 cents today. And the bid and the ask are the same. You want to bet it's lower by the end of the day? I'm not going to bet any big money on it, but my instinct is, if not by the end of today, by the end of tomorrow, the basic attention token will be down in the 14, 15 cent range. Now, if that happens, don't think I'm Spirico Domus. That's just a gut feeling. But if you're going to play in the speculative market, that's, I think, where you have to, 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 to be. And if you're going to like start looking for holes in the things, I think you have to get more informed. And again, Crashing a currency that you created doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, creating some kind of booby trap in it makes a lot of sense. However, if you're going to put up a crypto without open source code today, you're going to have every single genius that codes this shit looking at you with stink eye. So that makes that very, very difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rusty from Orange County, California. My question is... Do you think it's gonna? It's a good time to buy my first house. A um, couple of details. Um, I plan on buying a house around March of next year. I will have around seventy thousand dollars saved by that time. Uh, just do you think there's gonna be a housing bust again, like back in '08? So maybe it'd be a good idea to wait or. Do you even think the $15 minimum wage is going to affect housing market here in California? Uh, love to hear his thoughts. Thanks. Bye. Well, it's a little bit hard to answer, like, what should you do in March next year? Because the best thing you can hope for 
is the housing market to crash. I mean, you're sitting on $70,000 cash, and you're worried the housing market might crash, but you don't want to buy a house for another nine months. I mean, I would be sitting there going, crash, crash, crash. Now, the, the risk in waiting till March is the real estate markets nationwide are pretty much in a boom market right now. They're, they're increasing. And somebody, a redneck duck farmer named Jack, told you many years ago in the middle of the Great Recession that this was going to happen. And here's why I said it was going to happen. And, and by the way, the current president of the United States was who I was listening to. He wasn't the president of the United States at the time when I said that makes sense. So at one time, I was a consultant to Donald Trump, to one of Donald Trump's companies. And what they were saying at the time was there's going to be a huge opportunity in real estate because building starts have gone to nothing. And that sooner or later, no matter what, the economy will recover. And when it does, as people go out to buy houses, there will be a, a shortage of supply. And that's happening. Here's the other thing that happened that's, that's made it even more screwed up for first-time buyers. Because the, the, the economy faltered, local and county jurisdictions all over the country, and in certain states like Texas even more so, put in restrictions on new building. And what they said was, usually, all new housing must be X number of square feet. Very common numbers are 2,000, 2,200, 2,400, and 2,600. Those are the most common numbers that I've seen. What this does is it eliminates building starter homes. It eliminates building starter homes. When I first came here to Texas, you could go buy a brand new house for $90,000. I mean picking out your carpet and shit like that. Three bedroom, two bath, 1,500 square feet. And they were making money building them. They weren't, you know, custom built homes or whatever. And that same house that was ninety thousand could have ended up being one hundred and ten if you pick certain options with it or what have you. And most people did. They went builder grade on the cabinets, etc. Uh, but you could do that in two thousand eight, two thousand. Well, let's say eight's when it crashed. So two thousand seven, you could still do that. It was a ten year period, and the price of a new home went up five grand. Because they were building them so quickly in a production model that they were able to keep the cost of building down and it, it actually held back the cost of housing in general. And all the markets where this building was going on did best through the recession. They were the ones that were least hit. The, the places that adopted the minimum square footage to extort people on property taxes that you would have thought this area should have been pretty resilient but got nailed? How about Phoenix, Arizona? Have you ever asked yourself, why the hell Phoenix, Arizona, of all, you know, South Florida, it's a big speculative market and stuff like that. Yeah, California's always getting beat up, right? They're sore or they're just in the dumps, one or the other. But why Phoenix, Arizona? Because Phoenix, Arizona, and surrounding local municipalities Put in minimum square footage in the freaking desert where you have to cool that shit with an air conditioner. And that's one, not the only reason. One of the reasons they got hit harder than other places because the house prices were artificially inflated. And that's what happened. That's what's happened everywhere now. My, my kid is about to close on his first house and he's paying almost double what I paid for a house about the same size for my first house. And it's because they can't build that house anymore. 
So that's the situation you're in. Now, this is creating a bubble, and you're now in a catch-22. Because what people would say, hey, why don't we open up the free market and like let them build smaller houses again? What happens to the, all the people that bought those houses that were selling for, let's say, 110? I know out in California, it's probably 220 for the same house, or 230, depending, maybe 400, depending on if you're in L.A. County or something like that. But all the, just for my market, all those people that were buying these $110,000 houses, $100,000 houses, they bought it for 150, 160, 170. And you let the builders come in now and start building them again because you remove the minimum lot size restrictions. Well, those builders are going to come in and they're going to pound them out. And they're going to say, gee, if these things are selling, you know, with a little fix up needed and stuff to them for 150, 160, we're not stupid. We're not going to drive the market down to 110, but we're going to come in and we're going to sell brand new houses for 149,995, right? That's what they're going to do. And if you can get a brand new spanking brand new house for that, What's that going to do to those houses that are a little bit older? It's going to tank them down to 130. Now they're upside down on them. See, when government tries to do something, they create problems that are difficult to extract from. That's what you're in right now. Sooner or later, the housing market's going to have a correction. For you, it would be great if it happened this year. The bad news, it's probably not going to. The good news, there are always deals if you are patient And flexible. These are the most two. The, 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 there's there's three things you need in real estate: patience, okay, flexibility, and to be dispassionate. Remember, I say follow your passion. Not in real estate. Do not get excited over it. And your first time buyers, you're the worst. You suck. All right. I used to be one. I was. We're all. Buy our first property. And when you're a first-time home buyer, you get very excited. You're afraid somebody else is going to get the house. You drive by and look at that 17 times after your offer's been expected, hoping nobody gets in the way. Well, nobody they've accepted your offer. It's good. Relax. Right? you got to chill the hell out. Now, California. Um, I know you might say, well, I have family or whatever. If you do, that, I understand. But if I had over $70,000 in cash saved up, and I were a young couple, and I were about to start my life, And buy a house. And I hadn't done so yet. So my roots were shallow, not deep. I might look at not being in California when I pulled the trigger. I might, especially between now and March, I might look, what, what options are there in other states for my job, for my employment, for my spouse's employment, what schools, what quality of life? How much more would that money, or half of that money as a down payment buy me in Texas or Florida than it would in California, which just seems bent on destroying everything long-term. Otherwise, I'm going to put it this way. It's like having a kid. There is never the perfect time to have a kid. And there's certainly never the perfect time to have your first child. It doesn't exist. There's always a reason not to. There's always a risk. Right? The kid could have a birth defect. You don't have the best insurance. And then you're stuck with having to figure out how to deal with that. Um, you could, you know, you might be shaky. I could lose my job right when the child's born, lose my insurance. There's so many, like always just if this, if that, if this. You got to be smart, patient, dispassionate, find the right property. What I would be doing now, since you don't want to buy until March, I would be window shopping every property that sells in the area that I want to buy. I would look at what it went to market for, what it looked like, how long it was on the market, what it sold for. Every single one of them, not just in your price range. Just under your price range by, say, 20%, and just over your price range by 20%. And watch that for a trend. And find out which properties, which properties 
fail to go for asking price. Find out what was wrong with them. If it's an area where you're going to get shot, parking your car, that's the reason not to buy that house. If it's because there were certain things the seller was too stupid to fix. When you go to market to buy, you're looking for that property. And you're going to come in with a stupid low offer. Right away. The second it goes to, to list, yeah, we'll, we'll give you, you know, 70% under, 60% under for it. Here's what you know is going to happen. You know that property's not going to go for asking because you've shopped the market, you've watched the market, you know what's going on. You know it's improperly priced, and you know the guy's going to start, he's going to be on a monetary burn. And in the back of his head, that jerk lowballed me. And you're going to come back in two or three weeks, but it still hasn't sold because you knew it wasn't going to. And if it sells, you don't give a shit, you find another one, okay? But if it doesn't sell, you come back and you offer just a little bit more to show that you're willing to work. And then I bet you're going to get a counteroffer. Now, you might take two months to find that house, but this is why you need to be spending the next six, seven, nine months window shopping. This is like playing the stock market with fake money. Because then you learn, like, when I got really excited and I did this, I would have lost, like, my ass, so I'm not going to do that with real money. Same thing with real estate. What would you have bid on that house? What did it sell for? And what creative contingencies can you give when you go to, to, to bid? So you might bid under, at, over, depending on what, you know. You might find a house that's perfect, and you might have to go above asking to get it, and you might be willing to. Well, what contingencies can you offer? You know? Creative one that, 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 that my, uh, my kids did is they said, if it underappraises, we'll come up with a couple extra thousand dollars. Not all of it, but we'll say up front, you know, we'll come up with $3,000 on, on the spread and, and nothing more than that, and only what it under. So if it, if it sells for $170, we offered $170, and it appraises at $166, we'll still do $169 up front. Now that makes a seller like, okay, well, that's one thing I don't have to worry about because they're shit in their pants too. There's a lot of creativity you can use and find a good agent. You got a long time between then and now. Interview agents. Ask them who they're working for. Ask them what houses they're selling. Who they're, who, who they're representing as buyers, and, and find out if they're actually getting anything done. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is John from Kentucky. Uh, I have a question. How do I accept alternative currencies at farmers markets? I just got into a very large uh, farmers market down in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'd like to be able to accept Bitcoin, Litecoin, etc. I got a Coinbase account and got it on my phone with the app and everything, but I can't quite figure out what I'm supposed to do as far as to accept it from them. And I guess it's a stupid question, but how can you help me out? Appreciate it. Thanks for everything you did. Like I said, there's a lot of cryptocurrency questions today. So this is what I would do. I would get the Jack's wallet for your smartphone. And just about anybody that's going to be at a place like a farmer's market that is going to be um, willing to spend cryptocurrency is going to have a wallet on their mobile device. That's how people that use crypto in small transactions like that uh, operate. And what you'll be able to do with your Jack's wallet is you'll be able to open it and say, well, what do you want to send me? Well, I want to send you Litecoin. You go to Litecoin, you get an address, and there'll be a QR code, and they can take their phone and scan your QR code and send that money straight to you. And since if you use Jack, it's Jack's J-A-X-X, and the website's jacks.io, it has a, a, a product called Shapeshift on board. So if they paid you in Bitcoin, and for whatever reason you didn't want to hold Bitcoin, you wanted to hold Dash, 
you can immediately shape shift it into Dash in your, your wallet. And then you, you know, as it accumulates, you'd want to move it to like a hardware wallet or something like that. I don't, I wouldn't want to keep a tremendous amount of money in a software wallet on a mobile device, but that would be your best way to take and receive and, and, and also pay others who want to use it. And I, I think you could have a real advantage if you go to, my website, and I give you permission to use my crappily made logo thing um, if you want to, um, but I took the main currencies that I thought were um, most useful out of Dash, and I put them into like a single graphic so that you can, uh, you, you can, you can actually see the different cryptos that I take. And I'm no graphic artist, man. I did this in paint. I remember one time I had some documents that we put up to prove something, and people were like, you Photoshopped. And I'm like, I don't even know how Photoshop freaking works, idiot. Um, but I, I did. I, I put up on it. And there's a few other currencies in the Jack's wallet, but Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, Dash, Litecoin, Augur. And, of course, if the person wants to give you some other crypto, you know, they probably can work it out with you. But those would be your ones that probably most likely would end up in a situation. Well, if you printed that out and maybe added to something like, these cryptocurrencies accepted here and made a little placard and set it on the counter, your, you know, your counter, your table at a farmer's market. The reason I think that would be smart, it doesn't just say, hey, we do this. People that want to do business in crypto are literally looking for places to do business in crypto. Like, there's so many people that are users of this technology that are mission-oriented. And if I'm at a farmer's market and you're selling microgreens or tomatoes or cucumbers, I, I'm probably walking around and I can buy that, that from like 20 different stands. But if I've got a Jack's wallet or another application on my phone and I see that little placard, you know what I'm thinking? He's one of us. One of us. One of us, right? What's that from? I don't remember. One of us. One of us. It might be The Simpsons. But, uh, you know, he's one of us. And... At that point, I'm starting to look, is there anything I can buy from this person? And I would tell you, with Bitcoin transaction times taking as long as they are right now, you know, currencies like, like Dash and Litecoin uh, would probably be better currencies to use for those small transactions. Dash would be great. And the, the great thing is, if that person um, has the Jack's wallet and they're holding Bitcoin, they can shapeshift it immediately and send it to you in another form. And they might not even know that, and you could tell them that. And if somebody says, well, how do I do that? And you say, hey, you know, this is the application I use. It's called Jax. You can install it on your phone. And, and then they, they start using it. Then they'll be able to come use that, you know, with you in the future and become maybe a regular customer. And I think that there's that's probably the easiest way to get started accepting crypto in, like, swap meet, farmer's market, small retail, et cetera, environments. As long as you're the sole proprietor, if you have a storefront, then it gets a little convoluted because, you know, there's a cash register and blah, blah, blah. But when you have, like, a person-to-person -person transaction, um, the best wallet I've found is Jack's. And, again, when you, you just click you want to receive and you can pull up a QR code, they can pull up their wallet and scan that QR code and it just sends the money to you. And it, there's a little bit of lag time there, right? But, you know, you're at a farmer's market. You're not in a high-paced paced environment or whatever. So... And again, I would look toward Dash, uh, Litecoin, Zcash for those types of transactions. This is the beauty of that. And I'll say it's that it really is a very private transaction. And with uh, Jax, 
every time you go to receive, it, it creates a new address. Now, your old address will still work. So the last one you use, if somebody sends it there, you'll get more to that same address. But since every time you specifically say, I want to receive money, it creates a new Bitcoin or Dash or Ethereum or whatever address, there's no history of that address. It, it, it truly even makes something like Bitcoin that's somewhat auditable far more anonymous. Private, I think, is maybe a better word. Far more private. It sounds less you know, dark. Uh, so far more private. And when you do that, that means now you're holding Bitcoin that you can move to, or any currency that you can move into different currencies. You can put it on exchange. It's a way to get crypto without going to a, an ATM, without having a Coinbase account. And another question is coming up on that, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. And let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. My question is, what is the best way to buy Ethereum and Dash other than using uh, sites like Coinbase to charge you a fee? Uh, I've heard a lot about storing your cryptocurrency on Coinbase and other sites like that is not so secure, and they put a limit on how much you can buy. What's the best way to do it? Do you use a cell phone or a desktop computer, and what kind of wallet? Uh, maybe on your computer or a, a hard wallet. Just wanting to know more about it. I've heard a lot of things. would like to hear your opinion. Anyway, thanks for your time. Bye. Okay, so you see where I'm at here. Like, I think the best way to, quote-unquote, buy cryptocurrency if you don't want to pay, and you're going to always pay a fee. That's how all this shit works. Like, nobody's doing this because they like you. Like, the miners have fees that they charge to, to verify the transactions. Any third-party service is going to have a fee. Shapeshift that I mentioned has a fee. Uh, Jax doesn't have a fee, but what they've done is they've monetized their wallet by adding Shapeshift to it, and Shapeshift pays them a commission based on how many transactions run through Shapeshift over the Jax wallet. Right? So there's going to be fees. Even if you just send me Bitcoin wallet to wallet, Somebody has to validate that transaction. We call those people's miners. And there's a fee that they get for doing that. So just forget the whole world of I don't want to pay any fees because that's, that's pie-in-the-sky bullshit. You're looking for someone to provide a service to you, but yet you don't want to pay for it. Now, I know you're not being that way, but that's, I, don't even know, I know you're not, that's not what you're even really saying. Now, Coinbase has relatively high fees. They do. What Coinbase, Coinbase does is it's an on-ramp into crypto, and it's a very easy way to buy you know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Those are the three coins you can buy right now on uh, on Coinbase. However, I you can't buy Dash. And the way that I recommend that you would buy Dash or any altcoin right now, I think the best place to do that is Bittrex. And Bittrex, again, runs like a virtual coin stock market. Here's what you got to know about Bittrex. Do not go in your Coinbase account and send Litecoin to your Bittrex wallet because you can't use Litecoin to buy other things on Coinbase. I don't know. There's a, I see Ethereum markets and Bitcoin markets, so you might be able to buy with Ethereum. I'm not sure. I know you can buy with Bitcoin. So if I wanted to buy, let's say I wanted to buy $500 with a Dash today, this is what I would do. I would log into my Coinbase account. And yes, they are playing nice with government. Okay, but I but I but once you get your identity verified and all that shit, and you're not gonna you're not gonna hide that if you're gonna buy for cash in any significant quantities. You're not, so you accept that. You log in your Coinbase account, 
and you use a credit card, you buy, you can buy, I, now I have my limit up to a thousand bucks. I can buy up to a thousand bucks a week in Bitcoin or Litecoin or uh, Ethereum, any combination thereof with a credit card, which is attached to my PayPal account. So now you're basically buying it with PayPal. And if you use, this is the brilliance, right? So then what you should do if you have a PayPal account is you get the debit card that has the 1% cash back from PayPal. So now you use it as a credit card and you buy your cryptocurrency, you get 1% cash back into PayPal. That just knocked your fees down a little bit right there, right? Okay. Then you just send that, you go in your Bittrex account, you get your bit your Bitcoin address in Bittrex, and you send it there. Now, you've you at this point, no matter what you do with it in the next five minutes, You don't have any tax implications because you paid a fee. So you've lost money on the trade. Okay? And as long as it sits in whatever you bought, you don't have any obligation to pay any taxes until you sell it. So you want to buy Dash. You go into Coinbase. This assumes you don't have any Bitcoin to work with right now. You need some Bitcoin to operate on Bitrix. You buy your Bitcoin. You send it to Bitrix. Then you go and you say, buy Dash. And you, you know, buy at the bid or the ask, and you buy as much Dash as you want. It'll take a little while. The transaction will go through. Basically, you're selling your Bitcoin to buy the Dash. Now you have Dash. Now you can move it out of Bitrix anywhere that you want to. That would be one way to do it. But since Dash is inside Shapeshift, you can do it much more cleanly, and you can avoid Bitrix with that currency. What you would do then go into Coinbase, buy, you say, your $500 worth of Bitcoin because you want $500 worth of Dash. So you buy $525-ish to cover the fees and, and, and mining fees and all that shit. You buy it. You immediately send it to yourself as Bitcoin to your Jack's wallet and then shapeshift on board straight over to Dash. Now you have Dash. Now it's See, now you've used Coinbase to buy, not to hold and not to trade. And if you have to report anything, well, what did you do? I bought this this currency for $525. It was only worth $500. I sent it to myself incurring a fee, and I converted it to another currency that I'm still holding. I have no profit. I have a loss. If you'd like me to put down a $25 capital loss, I can do that. But Dash could have gone up 100% at that point. By the IRS rules, as I understand them, I'm not a CPA, by the IRS's rules, as I understand them, there would be no tax consequence on that Dash coin until you sold it, or technically if you spent it. But I don't know how they would know you spent it. And especially if you converted it instead of Dash into Zcash and then spent it. I, I, you know, I mean, but you're getting into the areas of getting in trouble with the IRS there. My point is playing completely above board by the book until I spend that money or convert it back to something else and into cash, I have no tax consequences on it because I haven't realized the game. There's no dividends or interest or anything like that. It's just an asset that I've purchased and appreciated in value, but until I sell it, because I could sell it three days from now and it could crash and I could lose money. It'd be interesting to see people start reporting a whole shitload of capital losses in cryptocurrency and knocking their taxes down and how the IRS might back off. I'm just saying, right? Because you can actually create some pretty pretty easily and yet still be holding an asset if you do it smart. And that's the thing is being smarter. But I'm not suggesting anybody do anything illegal here. I'm just suggesting that if I buy something and I pay a fee to buy it, I'm at a loss. If I convert it to another asset, I still have that loss. 
And if I'm holding that asset for the purpose of long-term gain, I'm not going to pay any tax on it if I report ever. If I am a Boy Scout about my reporting, there's nothing to pay a tax on until such time as that asset is liquidated into some other form of value. And when I sh sh shift it from Bitcoin to Dash, I actually lose a little bit more money, maybe a couple bucks. Got it? So, so that's how I would, I would either buy it, the Bitcoin, from wherever you can get it, and send it to Bittrex, and then buy whatever you're looking for, or I would use Shapeshift depending on what other applications I have. This is what I love about Bittrex. Bittrex is very, very anonymous. They don't want your social security number or your driver's license. You can set up an account in mere minutes. It's pretty damn secure the way that it's done. Someone would have to account, hack your account and your email. Now, you've got to be careful about things like this. Don't use passwords like your birthday, okay, um, or your favorite dog or some shit like that. But when you're using Bittrex, because they don't touch fiat, you can't buy Bitcoin with cash. They're not a money handler. They're a straight crypto exchange. So anyway, there's a lot on crypto today, so I'm going to stop there. But th those are my thoughts on that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name is Dan from Canada, um, southern Alberta specifically. Thanks for all that you do with the Survival Podcast. You really help us out a lot. We appreciate it. Um, first of all, um, my question is about getting started with a homestead and looking for land. What is the best way to uh, to get started and to look for land? The second question is sheep. Are they the best thing for a um, small homestead to get started on meat production and wool production, or should I look at some other form of livestock? Um, third question, um, sheep versus goats. I don't know. Sheep just seem a lot easier to take care of. So thanks a lot. I appreciate everything you do. Have a good day. Okay, I'm going to start off with the goats versus sheep thing and my, my thoughts on sheep. So... Personally, I think that if you don't have livestock experience, goats are a great way to ruin your life. That you should probably get your foot in the door with something else, and sheep would be fine, I guess. Uh, on sheep, the thing about sheep is, you know, you say it's a source of wool. You know, if you don't know how to do that, it's probably more work and more cost and more energy than you could just buy the friggin' wool for. I think that if I was going to keep sheep that needed to be sheared, I would I would want to make sure that there was someone nearby who did it for a living that would come do it for me, either for hire or they would pay me some small amount for the wool that they had some kind of way to liquidate. And as far as the wool yield, the wool yield would be the financial yield if you can do it. My understanding is it's very difficult at this point in history to make money uh, with with wool from sheep. That it's just there's no money in it anymore. That has a lot of things going on from imports to synthetic fibers to how much we do with copper and copper, I'm sorry, cotton now and et cetera. And that if you want to make money with wool, it's certain exotic types of wool that sell for a premium and stuff like that. That's my understanding. I am not a sheep nor a goat guy. I may someday be a sheep guy. I will never be a goat guy. I am not dealing with it. Uh, I know the people that have them love them, but it's a love-hate relationship because if they can destroy something, they will. If they can get out of something, they will. Sheep don't tend to go over fences. They respond very well to electro net and electric fencing. Um, they are dumb in a good way because they're not looking to do a lot of adventurous stuff. They just kind of go along and do their thing. Ben Falk has taken a piece of land that was completely denuded 
and turned it into some of the most lush, beautiful land I've ever seen. And he swears to God it is putting that vegetative matter through the ruinant belly of sheep that made it happen. I don't think he's actually running sheep any longer there. They did their work, and then that was one thing he didn't need to do anymore. But they were the regenerative force, by and large. I also remember the only time I've ever visited there, they had a sheep go down with fly strike the day I was there, and they basically had to shear it without having the proper equipment to do it, uh, and then treat it with some stuff and all, and it was, it was gross. It was nasty. My personal feeling is if I were going to do sheep, I would do some sort of type of sheep like a dorper hair sheep where they just shed their wool every year and you don't worry about it. That, that, that's my – now, I don't know in Alberta if there's a hair sheep that's compatible with those ten, – I, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea, but I would look into that. But I would go sheep over goats. Are they the best thing for a homesteader? I think that the best livestock for a homesteader is the livestock that you're most excited about working with that you have the resources to maintain and the infrastructure to contain. That, that's what I think the best is. And then you can then you use that on your homestead based on its intrinsic characteristics. Chickens can be fantastic. If you let them go free range and you have gardens, they're going to destroy everything. Ducks can be fantastic. They'll destroy some things, but not everything if you let them go free range or paddock shift like I do. You'll have to fence out gardens and things like that. So you have to understand that like basically a duck will eat almost any, almost anything you will. A chicken will eat everything you will and then some. I should point out ducks will also eat some things you won't, but they'll eat almost everything you'll eat. So chickens scratch, ducks make beak holes. It's a gentler disturbance. Sheep are ruminants. They pass that vegetative matter through that ruminant belly. They defecate it as manure, and they do a great job of restoration. What I'm going to say is when you're ready to get any livestock containment and being able to discipline that animal's patterns and an understanding of basic husbandry are probably best. And I think in your climate, sheep would probably work really, really well. I would find people that are already doing it and take a look at what they're doing because different regions have different processes that work best. Things that might really destroy land here might actually be much more acceptable where you are because where you are... Um, that land is probably a lot less brittle than my land. So grazing practice, like the number of sheep I can keep on three acres here is probably a lot lower than the number of sheep you can keep on, let's say, three acres there. As far as how to start looking for homesteads, you just start looking. You, you have to understand, you're not looking for a homestead. You're looking for real estate. You're looking for a piece of property with a house on it. And you're looking for a place where you can see yourself being able to do the things you most want to do, where there's the least amount of interference by government, and where, where you can afford it. That's, I mean, that's all there is to it. I would give you the same advice I gave the guy in California that's going to start looking for a home in March. Just start shopping everything that looks like something you'd be interested in, track it, see when it comes on the market, how long it stays on the market, what it eventually sells for. Find the things that are wrong with it, find the things that are great about it. And, and when you find the things that are wrong that are easy to fix, and then that property goes below asking price, as you're looking for your property, those are the types of flaws you're looking for because you know you have the greatest level of negotiation tactics because the person clearly hasn't done their homework like you have. It's basically reverse engineering my method of selling. Okay, My method of selling is make your property 1% better than everything else on the market by fixing all the easy things that don't cost much money. 
So what you're doing is you're looking for somebody that did the opposite, and they're like 10% worse than the median property on the, product, on, the, on the market, yet all of those things are relatively easy to fix. They're not structural. You, know, you don't have rats you know, shitting in the, the living room or something like that. Um, they're, they're relatively easy to fix. Those are the things you look for, and those are the places that are the opportunities. And it doesn't matter if you're looking for a suburban homestead with a little backyard to put a garden in, or you know five acres of pasture and what it's the same thing. You know, if I were, I don't know if they, they they are in Canada, but if it was me, first place I go is Realtor.com, and I start looking for properties within a, a certain distance around an area, a zip code, uh, with a certain number of bedrooms and a certain number of acres, and I just start looking at everything. I start getting to feel like, is this area even in the ballpark for me? And if it's not, I'll move to another area. Flexibility, right? Flexibility, be dispassionate, and be patient. That's, that's how you make good buys on property. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed your uh, aquaculture, aquaponics uh, show. I know it was a Tuesday show on today's Wednesday, but whatever. Uh, and then I want to share a couple things that I did. I I regret that I didn't take my aquaponic system with me when I moved to my my homestead. I just had you know so much stuff that we left it behind, and it was all used Craigslist stuff anyway. Um, so uh, one of the things that I found works really great for automation was the Flowmaster toilet valve. Flowmaster toilet valve. Uh, strapped to a piece of PVC pipe connected to a supply line stuck in a concrete block packed with sand, which sits on the bottom. And, of course, you have to make the PVC pipe the appropriate length. But that is perfect for uh, – that's what I use to automate the fill on my system. And the rest of the uh, controls I just built with lamp timers and outlet boxes on a piece of plywood. And I ran it one hour on, two hours off. And I grew everything from tomatoes, green peppers, sweet peppers, uh Cucumbers. I, I grew everything out of Dollar Walmart buckets with a with a electrical grommet and a piece of PVC pipe stuck in the side filled with pea gravel. And I do regret not bringing the system with me when I moved three years ago. I, I kept the buckets and pumps, but the uh, the swimming pools that I used and the tanks that I used, uh, it was just too much work to take them apart. All right, thanks for all you do, buddy. Bye. So. I'll tell you, this is the one, and I cleaned it up a little so it's a little easier, and I brought the huge peaked volume down so it's a little easier, but um, I had to have my wife come in and say, what is he saying? What kind of Flowmaster? What valve? And she said, toilet valve. And I'm like, that's it. Okay. The thing is, it's not a Flowmaster. Flowmaster makes things that go on the exhaust system of your car. It's Fluid Master. And they get, get trained. It's like, as soon as I heard that, oh, yeah, that's what he's after. So Fluid Master toilet valve. So this is actually, it's a float valve. But it's a cheap, inexpensive, brilliant, simple solution. And what he's talking about is you take the, the toilet valve. If you think about the, the, you know, the back tank of your toilet, and you take the lid off of that and you look in there, there's usually two different types of toilet valves. One has a big, long, um, like, boom with a, with a float on the end of it. And when you flush it, that goes down. And when it comes back up, it pushes the lever that shuts that valve off. That way your tank fills to a certain point and it stops. When you flush the toilet, it drops down again, and it comes back up and stops. The Fluid Masters, instead of having that big, long boom, they just have a float that's like attached to the valve body itself that just slides down and slides up. And when it slides up to the top, it shuts off. Well, you could just attach it to a piece of PVC and set it in four feet of water or take that off, and it would probably set in about you know 12 inches of water or add a piece of pipe in three feet of water. 
and anchoring it into a, basically it sounded like a bucket full of sand and gravel, right? So that it stays put in the middle of the tank. And then that way, if your water level comes down, whatever source you have to it just fills it up until it starts to switch off. That's a very simple and elegant solution. And these valves sell from seven to 14 bucks. I have, there's a contractor pack that's like $21 for three of them. And if you start thinking about that technology, there's probably a lot that could be done with it in the aquaponics, aquatics world. So I think that was a great hack. Now, the other thing, I'd actually like to know more about exactly how this system works. So what I understand, he was running water through five-gallon buckets full of pea gravel. And I'm guessing what he had was these buckets probably had, the they were probably being drained from a lower point or at the bottom, but you're running the water at a fast enough speed to keep the, the gravel really, really wet. And instead of doing flood and drain, or we, I learned another hack when we had, uh, I can't remember his name on now, from the aquaponic system out in East Texas, he's running flood and drains with a solenoid. So you take a normal flood and drain bed, you put a solenoid on it to drain it. And every 15 minutes or every half hour, that solenoid just opens for 10 minutes, and it completely drains the bed. And then it closes, and the bed fills back up. That eliminates a bell siphon. It eliminates a point of failure. Because bell siphons can clog and what have you. Yeah, we can run a little bit higher speed water. You're a little bit less worried about it. And you have to have the roots get oxygen. That's why you have ebb and flow. So what he's doing, he runs it for two hours, and the roots are just sitting in water for two hours. And then it just shuts off, and then it drains out. And they have an hour of, of the gravel draining. And then the water comes back on for two hours and, 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 and runs the... That's that's actually elegantly simple as well. You just stop running it, and the system can handle not running for an hour, you know, out of every three hours, or basically it's basically an hour out of every five is the way that that works out. Because you have two hours on, one off, two hours on, one off, and that gives your pump a break, and, and that makes your system very easy to expand. You're not so much worried about balancing your pressure to every place, as long as water's flowing into every one of your your beds. When it shuts off, all of them are going to drain and come back to a common point. It's, 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 it's simplicity, and it's inexpensive parts. So I really thank you for calling that one in. And I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more if you could maybe send me an email with some details, if you have any pictures of it, exactly how you were running those buckets. Like, where was the entry point? Where was the exit point? Um, how are you making sure they actually drained enough? Because if you had the, the, if you had the, Like you say, you tap the side of the bucket, it's going to hold the water stagnant, right? So was it just running through, like almost like a Dutch bucket, basically, but at a higher flow is what I'm guessing you were doing there. Uh, but I'd like to know a little more on that one. Thanks for calling it in. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego. Hey, there's more of a comment than a question, but um, or maybe a warning. Be careful uh, when you order plant materials off eBay. I have been visited by the Department of Making You Sad twice now because I mistakenly purchased things maybe I shouldn't have off eBay. Anyway, that would be helpful. All right, take care. Okay, so reminding you guys that I never encourage anybody to do anything illegal or suggest that anybody do anything illegal. I do point out at times that since people are grown adults, they might take advantage of certain things like you're not supposed to or it's hard to get and then you can get it anyway on something like eBay. 
When it comes to plants, we're not talking about the sacred herb with five leaves, just to be clear, and the little buds on them, okay? You die. As far as I know, there's nobody selling budage on eBay. We're talking about things like, and this is great, thanks to a guy named Ted who emailed me yesterday and said that Texas no longer bans a plant that I have been growing, but I really didn't talk about very much because, well, you know, invasive species bullshit, right? Uh, the plant I'm talking about is Ipromira aquatica. And, and Ted sent me this, and this is great because it lets me talk about it freely and openly. Um, this is on Wikipedia, and it says, Ipromira aquatica is listed on the USDA Internet site as a Class A noxious weed, especially in the states of Florida, California, and Hawaii, where it can be observed growing in the wild. Ipromira aquatica has been extensively cultivated in Texas for over 30 years having originally been brought there by Asian immigrants, because there is no evidence that indicates the plant has escaped into the wild, Texas lifted its ban on cultivation for personal use with no restrictions or requirements, noting its importance as a vegetable in many cultures, and also began permitting cultivation for commercial sales with the requirement of an exotic species permit. In Sri Lanka, it invades wetlands where its long floating stems form dense mats, which can block, block the flow of water and prevent passage of boats. Okay, which I'm sure they just harvest it and eat it. This is a great plant. So, for instance, now that I can fully disclose this, I wanted to get some Ipomeria aquatica. I didn't know that it was completely okay in Texas. I just decided that I was going to make my own big boy decision and grow some Ipomeria aquatica. So I went on eBay and I bought some seeds for it and they sent them to me and I threw them in my ebb and flow bed and they started growing and now I have it and I'm happy. Now I'm even happier because I know. Well, you might decide you want some Ipomeria aquatica and you might live in a place where you're not supposed to. And what Jesse's saying is you might be able to buy it on eBay, but somebody might show up. I personally think that if you're in California, the odds of that might be a little bit higher. I will tell you that I saw somebody selling a plant, a different plant that's considered invasive, on Amazon, and the seller was outside of this country, and in the reviews there were people very happy with it, and there were, uh, there were also people that said, hey, uh, USDA showed up and seized my shit and said I can't have it, and I lost my money on it, and I can't get it back. Um, of all the things that you might do, and again, I don't incentivize anything, I think this is one of those ones with kind of, when you look at Agoras, Agoras build risk into the system. So, you know, Vin Armani was talking about this. Like, people that were running gypsy cabs in New York, if they could get a, they might get a fine for like $9,000, but a taxi medallion was a million dollars. Well, then they just went on and did it because if you did get fined, it was so much lower than the, you got it, right? So I think on the, on the risk ratio, I think you can always, I, I don't know, I just thought it was a cool plant, so I bought it here and have it, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, don't think just because you can buy some online, it, it will come with no possibility of the department of making you sad showing up. And part of that is that government people tend to really look for shit when they have to come to a place. So a lot of things that you're doing that might be in a gray area, all of a sudden this is a code violation, this is a code violation, this is a code violation. It makes me think of my, my late friend Hal Nod, who did a, did a dickheaded thing. I mean, he was a good friend, but he did a dickheaded thing. He had a neighbor that had a fence that looked really crappy and was leaning, and the city of Arlington where he lived had a code that said if it leaned past a certain degree, you were in violation. So he called code enforcement, who promptly came out and wrote the guy a citation for his fence and then went up and down the road looking for code violations and found several that he wrote Hal up for. So you don't want to really attract this. So, again, I'm not saying you should do anything. I'm just saying that you know if you had a P.O. box or something, that might be a better place to order something that might 
or may not be okay, you know, because some of the stuff it's hard to know if it's okay. Like, you, you, if you look on the state's website, it may or may not say that it's okay. Or you might find a place where it says it's not okay, but when you research it deeper, that's old information and that's been lifted and they haven't updated that. So here's my one thing that I, I would say about invasive species plants. Whether they're illegal or they're, they're completely legal, but they're considered invasive and potentially problematic. I think that if we're going to use any plant that could go native in our ecosystems and cause problems, we need to really think about why we're doing it, if we should do it, and we just need to be responsible with it. Um, and then we need to ask, is it already like the genie out of the bag? I think autumn olive is just stupid. The places where autumn olive can colonize, it's already colonized. You growing more of it's not going to hurt nothing, and I don't know of any place anyway that I know of where it's illegal. Um, but if you were in a place that was pristine and there was no autumn olive, You might think about whether you bring it there. However, I think that one's benign. I don't think it harms native species. I think when I read the Texas Department of Agriculture's write-up on it and why they think it's bad, they basically say it improves the soil condition so much that native plants that grow in poor soil end up atrophying out and new plants come. That's forest secession, right? There's plenty of places with shitty soil for the shitty soil plants to grow in. They, they, we don't need to be worried about plants that grow in shitty soil having soil improve too much. However, it, it, a long time ago, and I never used it, something came into my possession called Af African box thorn, which is basically like the African version of goji berry. And when I researched it, I decided I didn't want to be the dickhead that brought African box thorn to frickin' Texas, so I disposed of it. So there, there's, there's multiple things here. There's like the government saying you can't do something, The government saying you shouldn't do something, but they're not going to stop you. Environmental agencies or environmental groups saying you shouldn't do something, but they can't stop you. And then your own personal level of responsibility. Here's what I feel about Ipomoea aquatica. I think it's an incredible plant. I'm so happy I can legally grow it now. I'm so happy I can show you it on video now and say, hey, State of Texas says it's okay now. And I can share that with people. Because it was never going to go wild in our ecosystem because it gets too cold here and it dies. It dies here in the winter. Now, I think there's probably places in very, very much the south part of Texas where it might be able to be a problem. And if you live there, you should really think about what you're doing. But somebody that has an aquaponics bed with ebb and flow or a deep water bed with a bunch of Ipomera aquatica in it, that's not going to end up seven miles down the road in Eagle Mountain Lake. It's just not going to happen. So... Take Jesse's warning, but also take a certain level of personal responsibility. And if you're going to work with plants that can be problematic, you owe it to not the government or the state, but to nature to be responsible in how you use it. And then some plants just don't screw with. Like if you live somewhere where there isn't kudzu, and you bring kudzu there, you're an asshole. Right? This is a plant that clearly destroys things. So just, you know, you don't have to be told not to by the state to realize that doing something's a bad idea. The state doesn't have a law that says you can't smack yourself in the balls with a hot frying pan, but you're probably not going to do that today, right? So don't do it to somebody else inadvertently either, all right? I hope that makes sense, and I hope it brought some humor to your day. With that, let's go ahead and take another call from the audience. So you had mentioned in one of your other shows uh, that about using a dirty water pump from Harbor Freight to move uh, the water through your aquaponics system. And I was going to say that uh, I've, I've been using, I found a three-quarter horsepower fountain pump at Harbor Freight that uh, I've had for about five years now. Never has malfunctioned. 
And I've used that for everything from pumping aquaponics to uh, cooling the condensers in my alcohol still, which I don't make a lot of alcohol anymore because gas prices have dropped. But um, just a thought. All right, thanks. Bye. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that you can use, like, fountain-style pumps in an aquaponic system. However, we've found, I mean, myself and my, my, my friends that are involved with aquaponics, that in general you get more reliability with a dirty water pump because when some kind of crud gets in there, it just chops it up. Basically, a dirty water pump is a pump with a garbage disposal on the bottom of it. Which means if you're putting it into a tank that has fish, like directly into a fish tank, you should probably like set it inside a bucket with a bunch of holes drilled in it because it will suck a fish plumb up there, spit his ass through the pipe. It, it will do it, okay? Um, just something to be aware of. I am running a, uh, a pump in my aquatic system that I'm pretty happy with that is basically a pond fountain pump. I don't know what the horsepower is. It's not rated there. But I'll put a link to it in the show notes for you uh, today as well. And I have some other pumps that I, I can recommend. Number one, Harbor Freight, from what I see, no longer offers a three-quarter or one horsepower any pump. They don't have it anymore. The pump that, that, that David recommended to me and that I've been using a lot or had used is you could get them in three-quarter or one horse. They were a dirty water pump, but they were not designed for continuous use. Hence... In about six months, they would burn up. But they were about $69 bucks for the one and $79 bucks for the other, something like that. And they had a warranty, a lifetime warranty. And it was five bucks to renew your warranty. So you just bought two, put one on the shelf, and one one burned out. You returned it, got a new one, put the one that was on the shelf in. Always have a backup pump in an aquaponic system. Use uh, unions that you can unscrew so that you can not have to cut pipe or anything and you just pop a new pump in. Okay? It should be the exact same pump, or you should have whatever fittings you're going to need so that you can route to the new pump and have that in advance to keep it in the box with it or tape to the box or something. Um, and so that was a good system. You bought two, you needed a new one, you went and got a new one. Um, I burned one up, burned another one up, and uh, Harbor Freight discontinued those pumps. And I decided that I was going to stop going low end, and I found a pump that I am right now very happy with. It is only a half horsepower, but it's running the same system that the, the, the one horsepower pump ran from Harbor Freight, and it seems to be moving just as much water and, and, and doing just as good a job. And since it's only a half horsepower moving the same volume of water, um, that means it's using less energy, which is a good thing. It's a 3,696 gallons, so call it 3,700 gallon per hour pump, with a lift of up to 29.7 feet, but it's $142 with free shipping. It's made by a company called Lanches. It's a cast iron body. It's really heavy duty, great float switch on it. I have a link to that one in the show notes. Um, that said, it's kind of hard to justify a $140 you know, spare pump, but I'll tell you what I like about this. Number one, it is, it is a dirty water pump. Number two, it is designed for continuous use. Number three, it's freaking quiet. When I had, I don't know if you guys, maybe not all of you, but some of you probably saw the video where the dogs busted my return line and the, 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 the water in my, my system drained. Uh, now, everything survived because we have the way we have it set up, even if you knock the lowest point off the system, the tanks will only drain halfway and stop. But it drained enough that the pump, the, 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 the valve shut off in the pump. And so the pump wasn't running. 
So I threw a hose in it after I fixed the return line and just started filling it up. When the, when it, when the water came up enough to turn the pump on, but most of the pump was still all the water, you could still barely hear it. It's super quiet, and that means it's well-engineered. That's what you, when you're moving that kind of water with that much energy and that much power and you're humming quiet, you know it's well-built. So I really recommend that one. But I also wanted to find, like, for a backup, you know, because you, you might never use it, I wanted to find one that was kind of an analog to the ones we used to get on uh, Harbor Freight. And I found one on, um, on Amazon made by a company called Homdox. And it's a one-and-a-half horsepower stainless steel submersible pump, dirty water pump with a float valve um, for $90, bucks, $88.99. I'm going to buy one of those, and I'm going to put that as my spare pump for every system. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go to, I have different pumps in different systems. None of them, though, would not be served by a, a one-and-a-half horsepower pump. By the way, this one-and-a-half horsepower pump moves 4,350 gallons, not that much more, about 600 gallons more than the half horsepower. So you know, again, you're getting a better return on your energy source. But I'm going to have one of these, and I'm going to have all the fittings so that it can go to any one of my systems and be the backup. And then that way, if I have a failure, I'll drop it in, And if I really liked the one that failed and think it was just time for a new one, I'll buy that exact model or I'll upgrade or find another option. And then I'll put this one back on the spare shelf. Um, I cannot emphasize how always having a spare has saved my ass twice now. I've had two pumps. One, I think, was just the cheap Harvey freight pumps that have been running for like seven months. David said you'll get six to seven months. Boom, just MTBFs. You know what MTBF means? Mean time between failures. It's a manufacturer's thing from my manufacturer sales days. Uh, so it's just straight up MTF. The other one, it failed because we got that horrible freeze, and I think the, the, the freeze killed it because um, we didn't have the greenhouse fully closed in, and we didn't have heat in it yet or anything like that. So I think that's what killed it. But both times I had a spare pump. And being able to go out there and go, shit, the system's down, and in 10 minutes it's running again. No dead fish, no dead plants. Really can't tell you enough to have a spare pump. But I have those uh, four pumps, the one I used in my pond system, the one I'm using currently in my aquaponics system, that, and I found a cheap one on Harbor Freight as well that is the closest thing uh, to what we were using that they now have. Um, it's a half-horsepower submersible, and uh, I, I think it would do a – it looks like a cheap version of the Lanches. And I, I'm kind of up in the air between the one-and-a-half one and this one is my backup pump. Uh, with as many systems as I have, I might put two of them on the shelf. Right? But I'll have links to all of the pumps uh, in today's show notes so you can take a look at them. Uh, three on Amazon, one on Harbor Freight. Uh, the one I use in my ponds, I've been using for a long time. It's called the Danner, D-A-N-N-E-R, 02660. It's a 3,000-gallon-per-hour per magnetic drive waterfall pump. This is a pump that's designed to be run flat out all the time. It does fine in my pond systems. I'm not asking anywhere near out of it what I'm asking my aquaponics system. My aquaponics system has, let's see, 12, 13, 14, 15 uh, delivery points of water. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of points of water that need a significant delivery. Um, I'd say nine of those are, are wicking beds, so they're just a trickle. Uh, but there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven ebb and flows. 
and going across a distance over 50 feet. And then also have a return line to keep the water continuously moving to prevent freeze-ups in the future. So I just don't think the Danner magnetic pump has the ass to, to drive that system. That's why I haven't even plugged it into there. And I'm using the heavier-duty you know, submersibles with flow, flow valve and all. And I, I, But I do think this Danner pump, for a lot of you that might be running you know, half a dozen beds, and you're not asking for the lift out of it or whatever that I am, I think it's a fine pump. And it is designed for that continuous use. So I, I really like that one, too. Now, important note on that, I have a link to it in the show notes as well. You can pay $150 for that pump, or you can pay $116 for the pump. I recommend you pay $116 for the pump. I have a link to it there. I don't know why. This thing's gotten hard to find on, on Amazon unless you know exactly the model you're looking for. Uh, they may be going to discontinue it at some point soon or something. I don't know. Uh, but I have a link to the lower price version. I would not spend $30 you don't have to spend to get the same pump because it is the exact same one. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego. Um, I've been trying to buy some Swarm City tokens. Uh, I wonder if you have any advice. Thanks. You see that sneaky Jesse? He went and snuck two questions in a row in because uh, I was cleaning out the email box today. He got them both in. Um, so this was a much shorter answer. Basically, I've answered this one already as to how I would do it. And I, but I also wanted to tell you, give you a warning about something. So when I heard about Swarm City, I was like, man, I think this is going to be something big. And what Swarm City is designed to be is the Uber of everything in a decentralized manner so there's no company to go after where if you wanted a ride share, there'll be a hashtag, need a ride, and you can find people who give you a ride in your area, and it earns trust, and I don't want to go into all of it. I've talked about it before, but it's basically you could find a handyman, you could find a dog sitter, you could anything that you can think of using like an Uber-like technology for, there can be broken down individual hashtags for, and then all of that would be, take place on their network, and you would pay for it with their token, the Swarm City token, also known as SWAT. Additionally... There's a secondary token that will float on this network that's not for sale. It's a trust token. So I say need a ride. You say I'll give you a ride. You give me a ride. I get dropped off. I paid you. That inherently means that you delivered the service you promised, and I was happy enough with it that I paid you. I showed up. You showed up. You took me there. I didn't say your car stinks or whatever. I got in it, and I went there. So now you've earned one trust token but for Ride sharing. You haven't earned a trust token for something like being a handyman. Those are two different worlds, two different things. And when I heard that and what they were doing, uh, the Swarm City tokens were like 96 cents a, a piece or something like that. I went out about 500 bucks worth, and I'll tell you exactly how I did it, and I'm going to tell you did the same thing up to this point at this thing. You went to Coinbase. I, I wanted to buy it with cash, so I bought $500 worth of um, Bitcoin. And I immediately sent it to my Bitrix account, and then I bought Swarm City tokens with the, with the Bitcoin in the Bitrix account. That's where I should have stopped. I also set up a Swarm City wallet on my Mac, and I sent it to myself. And I was in a hurry, and I didn't create a backup for it. And the Swarm City native wallet is native to the device that it's on. It doesn't sync like a software device across multiple. There's a way to do it. I can't do it right now. A couple days later, I tried to log in. I can't log in. It, I, I know I haven't forgotten the password because when I go to log in with the password, the screen comes up and says, just ask for it again and ask for it again and ask for it again. I put a wrong password in on purpose. It tells me the password's wrong. I've emailed Storm City Support and, uh, you know, uh, heard back from them. They've been working with me on it. And since I 
was using a Mac. They sent me this whole way to rebuild it using Safari. And I emailed them back and said, uh, guys, I use Firefox even on my Mac. And they said there's a similar process. They'll put together this whole tutorial for me to, to fix it. But they were working on the Boardwalk release. It's supposed to come out this week. So I'm still waiting to hear back from them. They've been fantastic. Okay, I haven't told this story yet, but I feel like I need to to warn you this could happen. So what I would say is if you set up a native Swarm City wallet on your device, find the instructions to do the backup procedure before you put a penny into it. Before you put a penny into it. And then you can move it there if you want to. Because I believed in the currency as much as I do, I went and bought more. I doubled down on it and bought more, and I left that particular small investment on the Bittrex exchange. Which I, I want to speak a little bit for Bittrex now, because we've talked about how risky it is to leave your stuff on exchanges. I think Bittrex has been around a long time. It's nothing like Mt. Gox was. It has tremendous liquidity. Uh, when you execute trades, if you pay the ask, they execute extremely quickly. Um, if I have a currency that I have a, a, an off-exchange wallet that I can move it to, I will move it. But I'm not hampered by keeping a thousand bucks worth of Swarm City token on on Bitrix. I'm not scared to do it. This is how this is what I like about Bitrix. You can get in and buy stuff if you have Bitcoin, right? You can sell stuff, but moving it totally different. When you go to move something out of Bitrix, it sends you an email and you have to click to confirm that email. So you use a complex password for your email, a complex password for your Bittrex account. Don't make them the same freaking password and practice good practices. If, if you get hacked, it's probably you getting hacked, not Bittrex. Okay? I mean, so I, I find them to be reasonably secure for the world of exchanges. If I wanted to buy Swarm City token right now, that's what I would do, though. I would either buy Bittrex through coin, uh, Bitcoin through Coinbase or any other service that you use. I would send it to Bittrex. I would buy it there. And then I would just hold it there until they get done with this 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 update they're calling Boardwalk. Uh, and, and when you do set it up, don't do what I did. Get it now. I, I, from what they sent me, I think that I'll be able to recover those. It's going to be just fine, but I don't want it to happen to anybody else. And I, right now, if I'm giving you a recommendation, I'd rather recommend that you hold it in Bittrex than hold it in their native wallet until they kind of fix whatever's causing this problem. Because it has happened to others, but others, unlike me that I've talked to, had done their backup for it. Okay, so that's that's my advice on how to buy those. Let's take, I think, one more and we're done. Actually, guys, crap. I, for, I just realized right now as I was getting ready to do the last question that I forgot something when someone asked about buying currency. And I, I got an email today about cloud mining from, from a listener, and I realized that it was a great way to buy Bitcoin without going through any type of major thing where you're giving your identity away. And I want you to kind of think about this, and I'm sure there's people doing it and they're just not talking about it, but I'll put it out there as something you can think about doing. So there's something called cloud mining. And um, like I said, I'm playing around with this thing called Miner Gate. I don't know if it's going to be worth the, the energy that it uses, honestly. Um, but mining Bitcoin and other altcoins has gotten to be where you need really strong hash power, really just just call it really fast computers with really technically configured the right way. Now, what some of the miners are willing to do is basically say, I will dedicate this much computing power and I will I will give you whatever comes out of it in return for money today. 
And you can kind of look at that and see whether or not it's going to, to produce a, a valid amount of currency for you. And the reason they're willing to do that is because it gets them out of the speculation market. right? They have a certain amount of cost to do that. And you're going to pay them for that cost, and they're, they know their profit. Now, maybe it's a six-month contract. Well, six months later, Bitcoin could be worth far less they won, or far more you won, or about the same, and you probably both are okay. But this is actually a way to buy Bitcoin and be completely out of the world of fiat currency, right? Because you can, you're buying the, you're not buying Bitcoin, you're buying the power, and that the contract is delivering you the Bitcoin, and you don't have to go through a whole bunch of, you know, here's my state official ID and all that crap to do that. And so that would be one way. And then once that, you know, in, in, the one that the guy told me about, they're mining altcoins like, let's say, Zcash or whatever, or actually Zcash, I don't think it's a mine. Yeah, mine, Zcash is mined. Let's say it's Zcash or Dash. They're mining those currencies. And, but you're, they're, they're paying you in Bitcoin. All right. Um, so I, I think that was the, the way that one was worked out. You know, like they're mining this. And the, the third party that's the intermediary that's allowing you to do it, they're getting the altcoins, and then they're paying you your piece in, in Bitcoin. And then you can do whatever. You, see, Bitcoin is the best to get your hands on in an anonymous way because you can push it over to an exchange and turn it into anything that you want. All the exchanges like all the exchanges I know of that I would use let you use Bitcoin to buy other currencies. All of the like, shapeshift, uh, those types of things, you can always use Bitcoin as one of your, your slides to get that. So... I wanted to put that out in today's show, that that would be another way to get your hands on Bitcoin without going through something like a Coinbase or a Bitcoin ATM or something like that. And if you wanted to make a significant investment, that would be... Now, it's not without risk. But if you use a reputable place to do your contract, the contract is going to be delivered. How much you're going to get and what it's going to be worth when you get it, that's your risk. But if you're long on Bitcoin, in other words, you're, you're in it for the long haul, you're not speculating and flipping it each and every day, then this is a good way to go. This is a good way to go. Uh, or at least I think it's a valid way to check out. I haven't done it myself, so I'm not going to recommend it. I just wanted to point it out. Anyway, one more question. I promise this one's not on crypto. Hey, Jack. This is uh, John from Oklahoma. Uh, my question for you today is, what would you do if you found a critically endangered beetle on your property? background. Um, I live in Oklahoma, honestly not really very far from you. I have five acres and on two occasions now I have found the American burying beetle on my property. This is Microphorus americatus. Um, this beetle is critically endangered and if the range map on Wikipedia is to be believed, I am not within the known range. So this is a range extension uh, for this beetle. But I don't uh I don't know if I should report it or even if who to report it to. You know, I've got five acres. I'm trying to build um some pastured poultry and I've got chickens going and you know, I wanna wanna uh graze some some sort of ruminant in the future years and you know, I don't want a lot of you know, government officials climbing over me. Nor do I wanna be the guy that makes government officials climb all over my neighbors. So I, I don't know if, you know, maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. I'm kind of having this internal debate. Um, I do know the known range on this beetle is eastern Oklahoma. And um, I know that certain companies 
that that operate that region, if they're going to put in a a uh, transmission power line or probably pipeline or something else, they actually have to buy burying beetle credits. And uh, exactly how giving money to the government helps the beetle, I don't quite understand, but I do know they have to do that. I don't know what sort of burden this puts on individuals and farmers and, and people like that. So I'd, I'd like to hear your comments on that. Um, thank you for what you do. I, I look forward to uh, to hearing your position here. And uh, perhaps if one of the other listeners lives in the known region, they can tell me um, what sort of uh, what sort of restrictions this it causes. So. Uh, I'll listen for your answer, and thank you for uh, for your time. Okay, on this one, I can't tell you what to do. I don't know even I have no idea even what the law says you're supposed to do in regards to finding an endangered beetle on your property. Personally, what I would do in the hypothetical situation that I was in this situation, I would do absolutely nothing. I would continue to improve the ecology of the property, and I would consider it to be my part in improving habitat for not just this endangered beetle, but all beetles and all things. That's what I would do. I think if you contact the authorities, they may come in and tell you what you can't do with your own property, and I don't think that will necessarily help the beetles. Um, as far as causing a problem for your neighbors, um, I, I, I don't think that's that's your... Intent, and I don't think that there's any real way you can do that. If they happen to have that beetle show up on their property and they contact the government, then that's their choice to make their lives miserable by inviting government into their bed. Okay? I mean, really. I, that's how I feel. Because if it's on your property, it's on their property too. You're not the beetle source. Okay, these things fly or whatever, move around, you know. Basically, it is probably the case that they're doing better than people think they are, and they're more adaptable to the region than people think they are. And it makes me think, it's funny how things just happen at the right time, right? So this morning, I was listening to the Tatiana show on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, and they had this guy on, really switched on guy, really smart guy, uh, definitely an ANCAP-leaning guy. And everybody on the show, because there's some libertarians and anarchists, but what they ended up talking about that kind of fits right in with this mindset is they hate government, they want a free market for everything, but somehow they got on the subject of rhinos in Africa. And here's this rhino he's running around, the horn on his face, if you shoot the rhino, cut the horn off, it's sold in the black market, it could be worth $50,000 to people think that it's medicine or magic or some stupid shit like that. And... <clears throat> What they say is, of course, the libertarian response is, well, let everything be free market, stop regulating it, and then people would farm rhinoceroses, and they, would be, they wouldn't be out killing these rhinoceroses, but they, they take so long to grow, it doesn't work out that way, you know, it can't be done, the population's already slow, low, and they're all lamenting it. And this dude that was on the show goes, well, here's your free market solution, stop seeing the rhino as everybody's, and let people buy the rhino. So these organizations like Greenpeace or whatever that want to save the rhino, they have tons of money, could just purchase the rhino, you tag the rhino, they own the rhino, and therefore they own the rhino's children, which could also be tagged and traced to a pedigree. And if you kill their rhino, then you owe them far more than they're going to get for that horn. Now, it's already the case the government will do something about it if they catch you. 
But now you have a third party involved that says, this is mine. And that third party that has the right to protect it, defend it, and seek direct recourse if you intervene with it. He said, I think they should let Greenpeace, they're out there, you know, with ships getting in the way of the Japanese whaling ships. Let them buy the whale. Let them, it's my whale. It's my whale, and that's my pot of whales. I bought them all, and they're protected by me. And you can't have them anymore. And if you do, then it's not just you broke the law. You have a direct civil action, and if the, the cost of that civil action outweighs the profit, that's the agorist risk. You know, if, if the fine for not having a medallion for a taxi in New York City was $2 million, and they actually could make good on enforcing it, and the cost to buy one was a million dollars, now you wouldn't have illegal cab drivers anymore. I, I know we shouldn't be giving the government ideas, but don't think they haven't thought of that. There's certain things that are reasonable within the code of justice, etc., that they can do and that they can't do. Okay, so that's why that's not there. But that, but when you when you flip that on its head, and, and then my response would be also like, so how's it working out right now? Like the the how well is the government of Tanzania doing at protecting the last rhinos? Well, if they're if they're as bad if they've been as protected as long as they have. And they're in low in population as they, they are, then that government solution is not working. And it, it's just funny to hear, you know, liberty minded people like mentally shut down because, well, this problem's so bad. And I feel, so, I feel, that's what it was. I feel. So feels get in the way. And this logical dude just goes, well, you know. And am I saying that's the perfect solution? No. I don't believe any solution is perfect, but it was a better solution than that the government do it. Because the government's failing right now. And it, it, the bigger thing was it opens the mind to, well, if you don't think that's a good enough free market, what is the free market solution? Instead of being mentally lazy. Well, because this one didn't work, then we just have to rely on government here until they build back up or whatever. Because the way that things are going with government protecting them, they're going to be extinct anyway. Surely we can come up with some free market solution. So how does that go back to your beetle? I don't think telling the government that the beetle's there will make it more likely for the beetle to be highly reproductive and survive. I don't think that will provide a solution for the beetle. And whatever extortion money and beetle credits that people are paying, I don't think that's helping the beetle either. But I think if you build a very diverse ecosystem, that may make it better for the beetle. And then there might be more beetles. And I'll say this publicly because he said it publicly, so I assume he's willing to have the public knowledge risk. Uh, Mark Shepard, I heard him say in a, in a great big talk with thousands of people sitting there, since he started doing the work on his farm at New Forest Farm in, in Wisconsin, he has seen three species of frog that are supposedly extinct in Wisconsin. They don't exist in Wisconsin anymore. Is that where he says? Whatever state he's in, I think it's Wisconsin. Like They're not even supposed to be there And just from putting the pawns in, and run, they're, they're there now. Now, here's the thing. We know, because the scientific method, the spontaneous generation is not a thing. And what that means is, they just didn't know there were still some of them around, and when they had the right habitat, they began to reproduce in larger numbers. So, do I think that, that, that Mark Shepard would benefit by phoning up the government and say, hey, please come take a look at these frogs? No. I think I might say, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Well, shit, the, well, the stuff I did is why that frog is there, you morons. I just don't trust the state in these situations at all. Now, if there was some animal that needed to be rescued, and the only option to get it rescued was a state rescue thing, then I would, then I would go that route. 
but but I, from a standpoint of if I tomorrow found some like you know almost extinct frog on my property or beetle, I, I, oh it's a beetle, I, it's a beetle. It's part of my diverse ecosystem because I can see all kinds of problems. Like if you ever want to sell the property, etc. Um, now, what are you supposed to do? I think it's important for you to find out what you're supposed to do. So you know if you choose to do what you're not supposed to do under the law, you know what you're doing and what you risk. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you my gut instinct is that what I would do is nothing. But if I found out, like, if you see this beetle and you don't report it and we find out that you saw the beetle and didn't report it, you're going to get a fine for $55 million. I might change my mind, just to put it as an extreme example. So become fully informed on what you're supposed to do, what the consequences of knowingly not doing that are, And then make your own decision. But again, my gut would be, I don't see no beetle. I don't see no, I don't know what you're talking about. But I would have a really good feeling inside of my heart that my efforts in regenerating this landscape are enabling animals that they didn't think lived here to live here. Okay? That's my thoughts on that. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. I enjoyed doing it. I know it was a lot of crypto and a lot of aquaponics, aquaponics things like that. And I ho hope everybody enjoyed that. However, if you're thinking, I wish he'd talk more about X, Y, or Z, call the number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and give me your subject that you want to hear me talk about, and I just might do that. In fact, I probably will. I think... You know, I love doing the email shows, but I get a lot more email than calls. I'd say you have a 70% to 80% chance of getting on air if you make your call and follow the instructions. Call from a quiet area. Call with more than one bar on your cell phone. Make your point or ask your question up front. Give details to follow. Don't scream into the phone. Speak clearly and loud enough to be heard, but don't yell at the phone. And I'm telling you, 85% probably percent chance that you'll end up on air unless you're asking a question that I've answered four or five times in the last month. Let me tell you how you won't get on the air. If you call in and just rant and rave about something with no real point and no real question, you won't get on the air. Or if what you're saying is incoherent, and I don't know what you're really talking about, you won't get on the air. Those are a promise I will make to you. I will not put my audience through either of those things. Okay, as we're wrapping up here, I want to remind you guys that you uh, can support the Survival Podcast whenever you shop online. And the only thing you have to do when you do that is go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z.com first. When you get to tspaz.com, you can see my reviews of, of items on Amazon. You can shop for those. And uh, you can see the Amazon deals of the day. You can do your online shopping there. And you help support the efforts of what we're doing. Um, today I have a product for you I reviewed last year. Bringing it back, back this year because I think it's, it's probably one of the best products that I ever reviewed. Um, I bought my first one like seven or eight years ago, and I still think it is just one of the, the best products that, that, that I've ever owned, honestly. It is the uh, UTG Ranger Field Bag. It's about 42 bucks. This bag is a beast. It's huge. Um, the amount of gear that you can carry in it is, is, is obscene. You can definitely overload it to the point where you're not going to carry it. It has great hand carry straps, and it's also got a great backpack strap system. It's kind of a sort of a version of like a U.S. military duffel bag. Really, really big, really, really tough, really well put together, especially at the price point of $42. Bucks. This thing is not like a John Willis SOE tactical gear thing you can hook two trucks up to and try to pull apart and not pull apart. It's not that tough. 
but it's damn tough. I, I when I was doing a lot of the the expos and stuff like that, and we were selling T-shirts, I would put like 200 pounds of rolled, tightly rolled up T-shirts in this thing and throw it on an airplane and pay the extra luggage fee for it because it was cheaper than trying to mail that many, right? And I and I could just throw it on my back then and and, and take it into the expos and stuff like that. And uh, you know we'd sell out and then just fold it up and stick it in my suitcase and send it home and not pay the extra baggage charge was how we use that. And uh, use it for vehicle bug out bags. It's a great range bag. I'll tell you, um, I, I get my CO2 for my keg system from an airsoft and air uh, paintball store that's right down the road from me. By the way, you keg guys, that's the place to go. They fill your like your, your keg, like my five pound one, they fill it for like 12 bucks. Um, then I was talking to them and... I noticed a kid with this bag. I'm like, that's a great bag. I have that bag too. He's like, do you play? I'm like, no. I, 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 you know, I come here for this, and I have some Aristotle. We use it for training and all, but we don't really play the games and stuff. He goes, almost all of them use that bag. He says it's the most popular bag. I see it all the time. And those guys are rough, man. They're throwing gear in there, and they have a lot of like safety equipment and all that. And he said it's like the most popular bag there. I think it's just got incredible usage, and it's 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 big, and that's what I like about it. In fact, if you if you look on Amazon, you'll see two complaints: one legitimate and one retarded. Okay, uh, the retarded complaint is it's too big. Well, if you read the dimensions on it, you would know how. I mean, just aren't there people that when you read them complain about certain things? You're like, I think what you should do is get a cordless drill and put like a, a three eighths inch drill bit in it. Push it on your forehead, push the button, and drill till you can't drill no more. And do the world a favor. That, that's what you should do, right? Okay? Like, that's how I feel about those people. Then the legitimate complaint is that over time, the little feet on the bottom of it kind of wear through the bottom and they break. That's a legitimate complaint. That's how mine finally gave up the ghost, and that was using it as a check luggage bag on, air, bag on airlines that did that. I, I, I think UTG could improve that bag by just not putting those feet on it. So that is its weak point. But for 43 bucks, for the bag that it is, man, it's awesome. You can find that review on the site today. And uh, if you're looking for a, a, just a well-built, large range bag, this is the best thing I can recommend. I've been recommending this, I think, since 2009 or 10 was the first time I put it on the show and recommended it. And I still recommend it. That says something. Again, the UTG Ranger Field Bag. Good stuff. For, for what you're getting. Um, and with that, we come to the song of the day. Um, John Adam had picked this one out for the day, and I, this is like one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, I think this is one of the most incredible pieces of music all, of all time, and it is American Pie by Don McLean. And I thought I would get on Song Facts and read you some things about it. I think most people that are familiar with the song know that it is referencing uh, Buddy Holly. But I'll, I'll read that. But I want to read some of the weird lyrics in it and what they might be about. And they're speculative. Uh, but here we go. According to McLean, as posted on his website, this song was originally inspired by the death of Buddy Holly. The day the music died is February 3rd, 1959, when Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were killed in a plane crash after a concert. McLean wrote the song from his memories of the event. Dedicated to Buddy Holly was imprinted on the back of the album cover. The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album was also a huge influence, and McLean has said in numerous interviews that the song represented the turn from innocence of the 50s to the darker, more volatile times of the 60s, both in music and politics. McLean was 13 years old as a paper boy in New Rochelle, New York, when Holly died. He learned about the plane crash when he cut into the stack of papers and saw the lead story. 
Talking about how he composed this song when he was a guest on the UK show Songbook, McLean explained, For some reason I wanted to write a big song about America and about politics, but I wanted to do it in a different way. As I was fiddling around, I started singing this thing about the Buddy Holly crash, the thing that came out singing long, long time ago. I can still remember how the music used to make me smile. I thought, whoa, what's that? And then the day the music died, it just came out. And I said, oh, this is such a great idea. And so that's all I had. And then I thought, I can't have another slow song on this record. I've got to speed this up. I came up with this chorus, this crazy chorus. And then one time, about a month later, I just woke up and wrote the other five verses because I realized what it was. I knew what I had. And basically, all I had to do was speed up the slow verse with the chorus and then slow down the last verse so it was like the first verse and then tell the story, which was a dream. It's from all of these fantasies and all of these memories that I made it personal. Buddy Holly's death to me was a personal tragedy As a child, a 15-year-old, I had no idea that nobody else felt that way. I mean, I went to school and mentioned it, and they said, so what? So I carried this yearning and longing, if you will, this weird sadness that would overtake me when I would look at this album, The Buddy Holly Story, because that was my last Buddy record before he passed away. I think there's a lesson in that, right? Like, to feel like you're the only one that cares about something. How many of you, like, when you found the show, you realized, like, you're not the only person that cares about feeding yourself or entrepreneurship or, you know, preparedness or freedom and liberty and, and the real meaning of the words? And I'm sure, there, you know, there were plenty of people that were hit by this. Just his contemporaries, 15-year-old kids, really weren't. Because clearly this is a guy that always... Uh, was for, you know, music was a big part in his life, and that's probably why at a younger age it hit him harder. Um, McLean admits the song's about Buddy Holly, but he has never said what the lyrics are about. He prefers to let them interpret them on his own. So let's take uh, a look at some of these. This is all from Song Facts. I will tell you that there was one interview when Don McLean was asked, well, what's, what does American Pie mean? And he said it means I'll never have to work again. And I think that's true. Um, here we go. Um, we'll take a look at some logical interpretations. The jester is probably Bob Dylan. It refers to him wearing a coat he borrowed from James Dean and being on the sidelines in a cast. Dylan wore a red jacket similar to James Dean on the cover of the free-willing Bob Dylan and got in a motorcycle accident in 66, which put him out of service for most of the year. Dylan also made frequent use of jokers, jesters, or clowns in his lyrics The line, and the voice that came from you and me, could refer to the folk style he sings. And the line, and while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown, could be about how Dylan took Elvis Presley's place as the number one performer. The line, eight miles high and falling fast, is likely a reference to the bird's hit, eight miles high, regarding the line, the birds flew off in a fallout shelter, a fallout shelter in the 60s term was a drug rehabilitation facility which one of the band members in the birds checked into after being caught with drugs. The section with the line, The Flames Climbed High Into the Night, is probably about the Ultimate Speedway concert in 69. While the Rolling Stones were playing, a fan was stabbed to death by a member of the Hells Angels who was hired for security. The line, Sergeants Played a Marching Tune, is likely a reference to the Beatles album, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The line, I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away, is probably about Janis Joplin. She died of a drug overdose in 1970. The lyric, and while Lennon 
read a book on Marx has been interpreted different ways. Some view it as a reference to Vladimir Lenin, the communist dictator who led Russian Revolution in 1917, who built the USSR, which was later ruled by Joseph Stalin. The Marx referred to here would be socialist philosopher Karl Marx. Others believe it's about John Lennon, whose songs often reflected very communistic theology, uh, particularly Imagine. Some have even suggested that the latter case, Marx, is actually Groucho Marx, another cynical entertainer who was suspected of being a socialist whose wordplay was often similar to Lennon's lyrics. Did You Write the Book of Love is probably a reference to the 1958 hit Book of Love by the Monotones. The chorus for that song is Who Wrote the Book of Love? Tell Me, Tell Me, I Wonder, I Wonder Who. Uh, one of these lines asked, Was it someone from above? Don McLean was practicing Catholic and believed that the depravity of 60s music, hence the closing lyric, The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. Some have postulated that this line, the Trinity, represents Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Bopper. Uh, some more interpretations. As moss grows fat on our Rolling Stone, Mick Jagger's appearance at a concert in skin-tight outfits displaying a roll of fat, unusual for a skinny Stones frontman. Also, the words, you know a Rolling Stone don't gather no moss, appear in the Buddy Holly song, Early in the Morning, which is about his ex missing from early in the morning when he was gone. The quartet practiced in the park, the Beatles singing at Shea Stadium, and we sang dirges in the dark the day the music died, was the 60s peace marches, helter-skelter in a summer swelter, the Manson family attack on Sharon Tate and the others in California. We all got up to dance, oh, but we never got the chance, because the players tried to take the field, the marching band refused to yield. The huge numbers of young people who went to Chicago for the 68 Democratic National Convention and who thought they would be part of the process, the players tried to take the field only to receive a violently rude awakening by the Chicago Police Department nightsticks. The commissioners who studied the violence after the fact would later term the Chicago PD is conducting a full-scale police riot, or as McLean calls the police, the marching band. So... If you've ever listened to this song and thought this music is just like music for somebody that's gotten high on dope or something, no, there was a lot of poetry and symbolism in here. And I think it's one of the all-time classic songs, just of all time in America. Of course, it's called American Pie. But I really do. I think this is the kind of song like when you have a guy that can play a guitar and you sit around a campfire and he starts playing, it's like everybody ends up singing. It. And it's just, it's awesome. And it, it makes you wonder how lazy modern songwriters have gotten. They do a two-minute song that uses the same words over and over and over again. And this is something that I think is really creative. So maybe you'll hear this song a little differently than you ever have before. And maybe it'll make you think, what do these other lines mean? Or maybe I don't believe those lines mean, because, you know, those lines mean that. Maybe they actually mean this. And here's the thing about real poetry. And good music is always real poetry. It is subject to the interpretation of the person hearing it. And a guy like McLean, I have a lot of respect for when he says, I'll just let you figure out what you think it means, because that means he's comfortable giving birth to something like this and letting people interpret it for themselves. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. A long, long time ago, I can still remember that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance 
That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write the book of love and do